Welcome to episode 12 of the Spectrum Lounge, where we discuss creatives of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. Host Rebecca Theodore Bashan welcomes Oscar-winning director Barry Jenkins as they discuss his latest release, If Beale Street Could Talk, an adaptation of the 1974 James Baldwin novel. Please be advised, there are major spoilers, so proceed at your own risk. The first thing I wanted to ask you, because I follow you on social media, and I, I feel like this time, at, at least with promoting Beale Street, you just seem to be more relaxed and having so much fun. So I wanted to ask you, um, what were some of the lessons that you learned in, in promoting Moonlight and now promoting Beale Street? Um, were there anything, uh, was there anything that you learned in promoting Moonlight professionally and uh personally that you look that you brought into promoting Beale Street this time? Um, I think in a certain way, uh, you know, sort of learning to not take it so seriously, uh-huh. um, I guess was part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I didn't understand what was happening um, as uh, Moonlight was happening. You know, they kind of took me completely by surprise and it wasn't until it was, you know, halfway done that I understood exactly what was happening, you know? Right. And so, um, it's just, um, I think that, that tightening or that stress was, was sort of, um, you know, it just arose, uh, organically, but, um, you know, going through it this time, you know, in a way, a, you know, I know what it is, but also too, um, I think, you know, my, my Twitter changed so much, you know, over the course of the last year, just my presence or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like as much as people, uh, know me better, I feel like I know people better in a certain way mm. um and so yeah the relationship is a bit different but also too you know i'm, I'm just you know, life is hard man and, <laughs> and so much is tough you know i turn i turn to social media uh to, to find a little bit of joy you know i know it's a strange thing to say about a platform like twitter but that is yeah. what i find that oh okay <laughs> um so i know with with the screenplays from moonlight and, and beale street you wrote both of them um outside of the u.s um did you feel that writing um, Beale Street um, outside of the country allowed you to have a certain distance or, or point of view um, in writing these stories? Um, I, I can't say for sure. You know, part of it is, you know, em- emulating uh, James Baldwin, you know, the, you know, one of our most noted and celebrated expats. Um, uh, but yeah, I think for me, it was just about uh, being alone, to be honest. You know, I think I needed to really just be completely alone uh, to focus um, on on the work, you know, and to really have almost like a microscopic view um, of the world of these characters, uh, which for me, like, was the world that I was literally from, uh, but in the case of Beale Street, is a world that I was trying to um, inhabit through, through James Baldwin. And, I mean, the results in a certain way kind of speak for themselves, but mm-hmm. I think also, too, it's about uh, uh, the emotion of the person doing the work because, you know, I tried to replicate that trip um, and failed miserably. You know, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to write a draft of the script in 10 days ever again. Right. <laughs> um, and I know that um, when you decided to, to shoot Beale Street, I, I remember that you had a community board meeting um, in Harlem, just really insisting mm-hmm. on, on, on shooting in, in Harlem. Um, how helpful was the Baldwin estate and, and his family and, and helping you accomplish that. And um, how was actually shooting in Harlem? How was the reaction to the Harlem community 
um, with you shooting Bill Street there? Yeah, you know, our our lo- location manager, this guy named Samson Jacobson, he's born and raised a uh, New Yorker, and it, and it was it was his, uh, not really uh, idea, his mandate, you know, that we go uh, go to the community meeting, introduce ourselves, tell them, make it very clear what we plan to do, um, and the Baldwin Estate was behind us 100%, and it's interesting, you know, it's, it's amazing how many people in Harlem uh, either know someone from the estate or knew James Baldwin or in some way, uh, like, you know, James Baldwin, third, fourth, fifth cousin removed, you know? Um, and so in a, in, in a way, because we were there to tell this story, um, people welcomed us with open arms. It's funny, I remember being at that community meeting and it was interesting. I just wasn't aware of what I was in for. Mm-hmm. You know, went to the meeting and, you know, we thought, oh, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go up and say a few words uh, at the top of the meeting and then, and then, you know, excuse ourselves and that'll be that. But it's like, no, we got there and people were handling their business. You know, you know, there were people from the community who had, uh, had something to say and they got up and they were speaking about, you know, crosswalks and, and safety and, you know, and, um, you know, uh, jobs for the neighborhood kids, all these really different things. And it was nice to sit there and listen to the community express itself. And then when we came up mm-hmm. to speak, very slowly people realized, you know, oh, uh, they're making a James Baldwin movie in Harlem? Uh, and oh, it's the guy who made Moonlight? Wait, what? And, uh, and it was like this thing where people started offering, um, you know, either their, their youth group to volunteer. And we actually did end up using as our on-set PAs uh, these uh, kids from the local community uh, a contact we made at this meeting. So, Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Um, so I, I... Yeah, it was. It, yeah. it really was. And, and, and filming in Harlem was, uh, it was amazing. It was really lovely. Um, you know, especially, um, you know, both uh, the younger generation in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, those people kind of knew who I was because of Moonlight in a certain way. And then the older generation in the neighborhood, you know, we have this sequence um, on Lennox Avenue where uh, Brian Terry Henry's character, Daniel Cardi, uh, runs into uh, Stephon James' character, Fawny. And I remember us uh, just gathering extras for that sequence. And it was amazing how many of uh, the elders, um, you know, who were playing extras in that sequence, you know, had a story about knowing Jenny Baldwin, you know, which is very cool. Um, so at the Harlem premiere of Beale Street, I remember you saying that um, when you were describing the movie, you, you called it, or you described it as a lush romance combined with James Baldwin's aggressive syntax. And I love that. Um, so when you were adapting Baldwin's work, like, how did you work to find the balance between the romance and, you know, the racism and the systematic oppression that, that Tish and Fani were finding? How did you find the balance in that? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, when you when you read the book um, and you and you finish it, I think both those things stay with you in equal measure. You know, you come out of I read this novel feeling very moved um, by uh, by the romance, by this depiction of both young soulmates and Tish and Fani, but also in um, adult soulmates. In the case of Sharon and Joseph, played by Coleman Domingo and Regina King, um, and so. And yet, at the same time, you also leave the book feeling, to be truly honest, really fucking angry. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you leave the book feeling a bit pissed off that these two young people who are so pure uh, find themselves corrupted right. um, by the system, or at least find their lives altered uh, by this interaction with the system, or I should say, an agent of the system, um, you know, through this officer bell. Um, and so, in making the film. 
it was uh, imperative upon me to leave the viewer with that same feeling. You know, you should leave with um, a sense of hope and optimism and, uh, I guess to be clear, um, a belief in the power of love uh, and family and community, but you should also still uh, leave with a bitter taste in your mouth because I think Mr. Walden was writing about some very real things about how these systems we participate in, whether it's a judicial system, whether it's a legal system, uh, which I guess are the same thing, or whether it's society at large, you know, when it comes to hiring and firing uh, of, of people, that those things are so easily corrupted, so easily corrupted. And so, um, what we, what I realized in adapting the book was, it wasn't an idea of screen time in the form of this many minutes for love, this many minutes for systemic injustice. It was about understanding that like in chemistry, certain elements have uh, a different density, and the systemic injustice had uh, a much deeper density um, in the romance. And so we needed less of it in the film to arrive at parity. Um, and I think in that way, you leave the film feeling like, you know, Baldwin's, as you said, or I guess as I said, his aggressive syntax and his um, aggressive stance on the ways in which these systems. Uh, systematically disenfranchised lives and souls of black folks, you leave it with that for sure, mm. but you also have this overwhelming feeling that you've seen a positive affirmation of black love. Right. Um, I, I read the book, and um, <laughs> when I got to uh, the love scene between Tish and Fani, and I, I was just blown away because I was like, okay, this is a, you know, James Baldwin is a black gay man, and he's writing this hetero love scene and it was it was probably the most beautiful thing that I had read I, I love that it was it was graphic but it was also beautiful and erotic at the same time it was time. graphic it was Very. graphic yeah. it was graphic <laughs> I was like oh my god he is on one I mean it is graphic as hell that's yeah. what you write but it's also sensual as hell and yeah. tender as well. Yeah, very, very. So I was, I was reading, and I was like, I wonder how Barry's gonna shoot this scene. <laughs> um, so what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so when you had to adapt that for the screen, like, what feelings or emotions did you want to convey to the audience uh, when when you were bringing that to life? You know, I, I wanted to convey. I think still the tension. Uh, the tension of uh, the first time mm -hmm. I did, and you know, look, I'm I'm not a woman, you know, and James Baldwin's not a woman, and so this was of all the scenes in the film, uh, in certain ways, the most one of the most terrifying for me because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't telling it from my point of view, mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to uh, one I had conversations uh, with Kiki about it, you know, I did, mm -hmm. and I was trying to really root myself in her point of view, in the character's point of view, in Kiki's point of view, and understand. Because the, the lens um, is placed in certain positions for a reason. It was like, why am I going to place the camera here? Or am I going to place the camera there? Mm. I need to really interrogate this. And ultimately what I came, what I landed on was, I wanted the scene to be tender, and I wanted it to be safe for her. Right. I wanted her perception of it to be that it was tender and that it was safe, and yet that there was still this tension, this nervousness, you know, about um, about the first encounter. Um, however, she's having her first encounter, her first sexual encounter with her soulmate, mm. you know, someone who she, you know, 15 minutes ago has just said, you know, we were a part of each other, flesh of each other's flesh, you know, which which none of us took, which both of us took for granted, and so we never thought of the flesh, you know. 
but now here the flesh must be thought of. And so um, the, the way we filmed it, it's interesting. We only took the wall off the set once. It's mm-hmm. the only time we ever view that room um, from that perspective. And part of that is because that's Fani's home. It is. But that scene is meant to be her point of view. And so we took the wall to change the perspective. We took a wall to change the perspective of where that was filmed from. And we wanted to make sure to always prioritize her in the foreground. Now, that became a small problem mm-hmm. because I had this really amazing way. I wanted to shoot the scene where we do it all in this one long shot. And, uh, and you know, in the film that you saw, we cut away from the bed to show Stefan James at the record player. But in my conception of it, we never cut away uh, from the bed. And so we stay with her and very near focus, and he is just like this blob and soft focus way in the background. You don't see him put the record player, you don't see him take his pants down, any of that. He's just like this blob. And then he slowly comes back to us, and he brings himself back into focus, and they go down to the bed. That was all one shot. Mm. The version of that scene that's all just one shot. But then I showed it, I know, I said the same thing, I was like, but beautiful. But then I showed it to some of my female filmmaker friends, and they were like, Barry, what do you think you're doing? And I was like, oh, it's the female gaze, right? We're like staying with her. They were like, no, 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 no. And that was a, that was a hot woman at the record player getting undressed. You would cut to her. You would objectify her. Right. And they were like, if it's her scene, then she should objectify him. And so we had the coverage. And so we cut to Stefan James. We break up my beautiful masterly Warner uh, with, with the near focus and the pinpoint focus that makes him a lot. And we objectify him. We cut to him taking off his pants, and you see his shirt and his six-packs. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is not <laughs> what I want to see, but this is what she would want to see. Oh. And that was the difference. Right. So, I mean, so you mentioned the, the feminine gaze, right? So... Um, how do you, as a filmmaker, because there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the feminine gaze, the male gaze, and then there's also the white gaze, right? Mm-hmm. So as a black filmmaker, how mm-hmm. do you work to combat that, right? Because sometimes, you know, especially when we're making movies about the black experience or black life, sometimes it can be a little didactic, you know what I mean? Where it's sort of like mm-hmm. trying to appease white filmmakers uh, or, or white moviegoers. So yeah. how do you as a black filmmaker try mm-hmm. to keep that out of your films? How do, how do you try to keep the white gaze out of your films? Um, you know, the white gaze I can't speak to uh, because I'm not white. I mean, my cinematographer is, but okay. ultimately uh, he, he understands. He, he knows. He, he knows what it is, and ultimately, the film is the director's um, gaze. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, we arrive at things collaboratively, but you know, the gaze is my responsibility. Um, but it's not something that I really think about um, a lot. That aspect of it, I will say, in this film, I was trying to be radically aware. Uh, and by the way, I want to say I don't think about it because I am black and mm-hmm. my characters are black. And so I'm not really concerned, um, or maybe I should be, uh, about slipping into any other person's gaze. Um, but as far as the male gaze versus the female gaze, that was really interesting um, on this film. And the lovemaking scene was the place where it most, um, it most readily presented itself that I needed to really understand whose point of view the scene was being framed from. Uh, but over the course of making the film, uh, what I really realized was, as far as the female gaze goes, we think of it as a visual thing. It's like the camera's here or the angle's there. Mm-hmm. But I think really it uh, it applies and radiates out to everything in the film, you know, how a film sounds, you know, how the actors move, um, you know, how the voice and the soundtrack are prioritized or not. 
Um, and so in thinking of all those things, I realized I had to start checking my directorial ego and really listen to all the women I was working with. Mm -hmm. And that went from the actors, from Regina and Kiki to Tiana and Anjanoon, and also my editor, Joy McMillan. You know, there were a few scenes in this film where Joy was actively advocating, like, um, Barry, um, that's great, but, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and on this one, I really uh, had to become accustomed to, you know, because you always have discussions with an actor. Mm -hmm. No, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And typically, um, I feel like the actor is working towards something. It's, it's a joint image, but the image in my head is the image that, in some ways, we need to coalesce around. Whereas in this film, I'm just not a woman, and James Baldwin's not either. And mm. so if Regina has a very strong feeling about something, I need to find a way to coalesce around her feeling and mm -hmm. still keep it within my voice. And, uh, and that was a really interesting lesson to learn um, on this film that hopefully will be applicable to, to everything else I make going forward. Right. Um, I want to talk about Regina King for a moment because I, I know you mentioned uh, collaborating mm -hmm. with uh, the, the actresses on the show and I, the scene where she goes to Puerto Rico, I kind of nickname it her her Femme Nikita moment because <laughs> I, <laughs> I do. I'm just like, that's yeah. what it is. And um, so I, I mean, look, the way the way she lands, the way she lands at the airport yeah. is very reminiscent. Of, I mean, it's not literally reminiscent, but I remember watching um, Film Fatale by, uh, by Brian De Palma for the mm. first time. And the sound of homegirl's boots on the sidewalk when she's walking with those, those knee-high boots. Yeah. I just remember thinking, that is just so, I am just with this woman. And then, I, I'm sure you, because you followed me on Twitter, you saw how I just became obsessed with Nancy Pelosi and this coat coming out of uh, the president's office. Yes. And so I think in a certain way, um, the way uh, Regina is introduced in that sequence, you're right, it is this, like, um, La Femme Nikita kind of moment because mm -hmm. the movie almost becomes a silent film in a certain way. You know, Kiki says, Mom, it's the Puerto Rico and Evening Plane. And they not a line of dialogue for the next, like, two, two and a half minutes, you know. It's all just Regina, uh, her face and her body, you know, doing all the work of the film. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I, the, the scene where she, uh, Regina's character, uh, confronts the the woman who is the victim of the sexual mm -hmm. assault. I was just so riveted by mm -hmm. that scene because you have these two women, um, you know, the, it's, a, it's a fight of wills almost, right? Because Regina's character is, is fighting for her family yeah. and this is a woman that is very traumatized and you notice that they're, you realize that they're both victims um, of a system that is bigger than the exactly. both of them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and exactly, I, exactly. And it was, it was, it was, it was, I'm sorry, continue. Oh no! I just I just thought that that it was it was so um, like for me I was rooting for Regina's character. I was like, yes, get her on the plane, get her in that cab, get her over there so she can um, you know testify. But then I think there's this scene, and I think Regina played it beautifully. And maybe you can talk to me about writing that scene where Regina real or or Sharon's uh, character realizes that she's crossed the line, where this woman is very traumatized. Exactly. You know what I mean? Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's one of those scenes where I think because of how we've become accustomed not just to watching movies but to ingesting stories, mm -hmm. and even uh, the way our society is built right now. I mean, literally, you know, from politics to the justice system. You know, we don't go into a courtroom trying to find the truth. It's about 
guilty or not guilty. And either the prosecution wins or the defense wins. You know, it's not about the truth, it's about winning and losing. Mm-hmm. And so when Regina goes down to Puerto Rico, when Sharon goes down there, you know, you, you are in your head going, okay, she has to win. But in order for her to win, someone has to lose. And this woman does not deserve to have any more pain visited upon her. And I think you're absolutely right. The way Regina plays that scene is she has a goal. And her goal is worthy. It's meritous. You know, she wants to free uh, this innocent man. And yet, in order to do that, she realizes, oh, my God, I have to make this woman suffer more because in order to prove Fadi's innocence, she has to go back in and reaccess her trauma. And when she realized that's what's happening, everything just falls apart. Mm-hmm. Everything just falls apart. And there's this lovely moment where Regina looks at her and she can see how wounded Emily is. And Emily, uh, Victoria is. And Emily does such a great job. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, it's such a nuanced, delicate thing that they're both doing. Um, because neither one of them, I, I even feel like uh, Victoria Rogers doesn't want to hurt or harm Sharon. Because she realizes this woman is also so so fragile as well, mm-hmm. which we already know because she couldn't even decide whether she wanted to put the wig on or take it off. And so I think the way the dance that they both play um, is really interesting because what you ultimately, for me, what I see in that scene is everyone in this film has been disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Regina should not be there badgering. Regina should not be there um, uh, uh, pushing this woman. She just should not be. She should not be. She should not be, because she should not be in this situation in the first place. And whoever is actually responsible for this assault, that person is not being talked to by anyone. Right. And and the, the legal authorities are not concerned with that person at all, because all that happened was a system that is so prone to be manipulated, was manipulated so that uh, young Fani could be pushed into the system uh, for the crime of standing up for himself when this officer approached him at the supermarket when he was defending his lady. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things, man. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, filming that scene because it's so delicate. And, you know, I'm a very, I, I think I'm a very visual filmmaker. I mm-hmm. think the visual um, aspect of the way James and I tell stories is very important. And I remember understanding very quickly that all that stuff needed to go away uh, because of what Regina and Emily had to do was so delicate and so fine-tuned, and I need to give them total freedom. And so there's no lights, there's, there's no marks, and there's no crew. It's just those two women, James Laxman and the camera. I'm not even in that alley, you know. Mm. We just gave them complete freedom in that space. You know, because I think that's what was necessary in order for them to truly, to truly um, live uh, in that truth. Right. Um, so speaking, and that's something I want to talk to you about, because um, going back to the book, there were some things in Beale Street that were not in the play, like Fonny's father committing suicide at the end. And then um, also uh, mm-hmm. the scene with Daniel and Fonny. In the book, Daniel admits that, you know, not only has he witnessed, uh, you know, uh, this young black man being sexually assaulted by other uh, uh, inmates, he himself, Daniel, was sexually assaulted himself. Um, and so, you know, mm-hmm. with Beale Street, we've got other movies like Monsters and Men and The Hate You Give. Um, you as a black filmmaker, where do you draw the line? Like you want to show the realities of black life, um, but then also knowing that certain images might, you know, in fact, trigger or re-traumatize black audiences. So how do you find that line where, yeah, like, where you want to lean in and as opposed it's, to pulling it's back? It's interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting, and, and it is a very fine line, and I think that line is not the same for every instance. You know, for example, you're absolutely correct. Uh, now, I will say, we did film um, uh, the, the utterance that, that Fonny's father, played by Michael Beach, uh, committed suicide. We mm -hmm. did. You know, we, we filmed an ending that has an extreme fidelity to the way the book ends. Uh, but then you watch the film, and the performance that Stefan James gives in that last prison visit, um, for me, there was so much written on his face. You know, earlier he says, um, you know what's happening to me, to me in here. And mm -hmm. I think in that last performance, without him saying explicitly what's happening to him in there, you understand what's happening. And people would watch the film, and they would, you know, when we were doing test screens and things like that, and they would assume that Fonny goes back and commits suicide. Mm. And then Tish goes home, not knowing that, and she hears that Fonny's father, that Frank has committed suicide. And I just thought, this baby is being born under such a shroud of death. Mm. And I just don't want to be responsible for killing these black patriarchs. You know, the, the, the heaviness, the, what we've seen already, that, that trauma is enough. And that was how I arrived at the decision of extending the ending and confirming that the family was intact, that the child um, was healthy, and that the family will endure. You know, mm. Stephon James's character, Fonny, says, I'm going to build us a great big table and our family's going to eat off of it for a long, long time to come. And it's not the table he promised, but ultimately, in the end, they are sitting around the table, and they are nourishing each other, and the family is intact, the child is healthy. Mm -hmm. And so some of those decisions, you make them, you know, as you go. Um, and then some things you take out that, that work um, in the opposite. For example, and the book is very clear that Fadi is the only black man in the, in the police lineup which makes it really clear of why he was chosen out. Oh. But even still, even if there were five black men in the police lineup, you know, and, and, and someone else not Fonny was chosen, it's possible even that guy wasn't the person. Because, you know, Fonny's not the only person who's been stopped and frisked, you know, and put into the situation, you know? Mm. And so I think you make decisions both ways. Some things are too easy, and then some, some things I do think you have to draw a line with the audience, um, maybe push, uh, push them too far. And I say that because... Ryan Tyree Henry gives such, such a just a deeply, deeply tragic and wounded and just broken mm -hmm. performance that to state explicitly what has happened to him, um, to me it's almost like it's visiting um, horror upon horror. And I thought that as a performer, he did enough that you can feel those things without them being said explicitly. Right, right. No, that that that's absolutely true. Um, one of the things that I, I really loved and appreciated about Beale Street too was um, the fact that, at least for me as a black woman, this is like a rarity where you see so many browner skin and and darker skin darker skin black actresses in lead roles. I think the only other movie this year that did that was Black mm -hmm. Panther. Um, and so, you know, there's mm -hmm. this ongoing conversation about color, about colorism in the Hollywood industry. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on how black filmmakers and producers and decision makers can, can recognize and, and, rec and rectify this situation. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I don't know. I just, I just go about, and I see these characters in my head, and, and that's that's who they are. You know, I think with this book in particular, it had to be dark skin. Like, I I just stood up on that. You know, she just has to be dark skin, you know. Um, and I didn't make that decision out of any kind of, like, radical choice or anything like that. Um, I just wanted her, I just felt like she had to be 
dark skin. It's interesting, you asked me about colorism, because in the book, you know, Fadi's family is all written to be light-skinned, and so there is this aspect of colorism, mm-hmm. you know, in addition to, you know, uh, Fadi's family being a bit more pious, them having a bit more money, they also are lighter-skinned, so there's this, this other element of why Fadi's mother thinks that, as Tish says in voice story, when uh, Fadi's mother uh, didn't think I was good enough for Fadi. Um, that was an aspect of the football room to the book, and I was hoping, again, I wanted to start from as faithful a place as possible, and in the process of making the film, let the film organically become itself. And so I wanted to hold on to that aspect of colorism, but Stefan James gave an audition, and I put him through the ring here because, again, I was so trying to honor the text. <laughs> but ultimately, it's clear this guy's the best person for the part. And I thought, you know what? If you're going to flip it this way, if you're going to flip it anyway, flip it this way, because typically the character is written dark skin and cast light skin. Uh, because of the myth that has been unfortunately allowed to uh, to reinforce itself, that audiences want to see lighter skinned people. Mm. That somehow intrinsically those those movies will do better. That's always been the myth. It's always been the myth. But a dark ass skin movie made eight point bajillion nine dollars this year. I'm talking <laughs> about Black Panther, so let's right. put that shit direct. But in this case, I thought, you know what, if we're going to flip it, let's flip it this way. The character's written light skin in the book, we're going to make him dark skin. And then this beautiful thing happens, which is, it just didn't occur to me. Because it wasn't my intention, I'm going to be honest. I didn't do this for a political reason, mm. but I've had people come to me after screenings and go, it just moved me so much to see two dark skinned black people depicted as soulmates, uh, very purely in love. Mm. And it just never occurred to me, the 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 emotion in as simple in, in, a, in, in an image imagistically something as simple as that just seeing two dark skinned black people in the act of loving each other and I was like oh okay shit you know let me let me go forth and be even more aware um, of this I think somehow just by default you know I've um, sort of leaned into that in my work so far but let me be more aware of it going forward uh, because it is something to be addressed um, because when people you know, we had a screening of this movie in Paris, mm-hmm. and I remember afterwards, uh, the screening was co-hosted by this, like, African Arts uh, Consortium. And I remember standing around, you know, it's one of those things where afterwards at the mixer, people were waiting to talk to you, and there were these um, four dark-skinned black women waiting to talk to me. And so finally I go over, I say, hey, how are you doing? They didn't want to talk about politics, they didn't want to talk about James Baldwin, they didn't want to talk about Kiki's hair. <laughs> and I was like, um, what's up? They were like, they were like, yeah, her, her hair. You, you just, you, you left it that way. I was like, oh, but that's that's like her hair. They were mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know, but but it's like in a movie, they always change her hair. I was like, but no, that's her hair, and, and she's beautiful. And it's the look on their faces. It was like, again, it was like just this very simple thing. And that's Kiki's hair. She's gorgeous. Why would I change her hair? But because of the lack of these kinds of images, you know, um, they have this added um, sort of weight. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I've just stumbled into some of these more representative images. Um, but I think going forward, I want to be much more aware of them. Great. Well, well thank you so much, Barry, <laughs> for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry we couldn't do it in person. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. If Beale Street Could Talk is currently playing in New York and L.A., and will open nationwide December 25th. You can find Barry Jenkins on Twitter, at Barry Jenkins. You can also find our host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, on Twitter, 
at filmfatale underscore NYC. You can help support the Spectrum Lounge by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash filmfatale underscore NYC. Thank you for listening. Until next time.